Hello and welcome to Coffee Meet with Algamy Consulting with me, your host, Chris New. Today's podcast is a third in our series of podcasts titled Optimism with Caution. As always, we aim to provide insight from key players of the wealth and asset management industry on what it means to run and operate an investment management business as the industry looks forward to refocusing on a post-COVID world while also adapting to a post-Brexit era. Today's topic, ESG and sustainable finance, are we moving towards standardisation? The wealth and asset management industry has been diligent in integrating ESG in their investment and product development processes over the past few years. Today, the increasing number of ESG taxonomies and regulations raises the question whether we are moving towards a standardization of ESG. Is this practically possible given the diversity of philosophy and practice in the creation, launch and distribution of ESG solutions? Is this a desirable outcome for the industry? So to follow on from our first podcast, we are going to uh, focus on ESG and it's time to go transatlantic again as we're very lucky to be joined over Zoom by two wealth and asset management investment veterans. My first guest uh, based in New York is Scott Clemons, partner and chief investment strategist at Brown Brothers Harriman Private Bank. Welcome, Scott. Good afternoon, Chris. Nice to be with you. Thank you. And our second guest is Alex, who's based in London and he's the founder and CEO of Goals First fixed income specialist firm with a disruptive investment approach and impact as the key differentiator. Prior to this, he was ESG portfolio manager at PIMCO, so perfect for this topic. Welcome, Alex. Great to see you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Right, you too. Are you you both ready with your coffee? I'm on my third cup of the day. I think before we kick off, maybe we'll do some quick elevator pitch introductions. Uh, So, Scott, do you want to go first? What's your journey and what are you particularly passionate about in terms of ESG or sustainability? Sure. So I've been at Brown Brothers Harriman now for over 30 years, and the entirety of that career has been winding one way or another on the investment side of our business. I actually started my career working for Brown Brothers Harriman in London many years ago in the early 1990s, just when the European rate mechanism was coming together, the Iron Curtain had fallen, Eastern Europe was opening up for investment. So a very interesting time for a young analyst to learn uh, the craft of the trade. Over the entirety of that 30 years, I've worked with private clients. The bulk of our private banking business is families, a few endowments and foundations. And any family I've ever worked with, any endowment I've ever worked with has been interested in sustainability. The terminology has changed over time, but a keen attention to the stewardship of assets defined more broadly than just financial has been something that's uh, been part of my career for the past three decades and counting. So you a veteran in sustainability as well as the investment process. We're all amateurs. We're all <laughs> learning this. as beginner's mind, as the Buddhist religion holds, is important to approaching the subject matter, I think. Alex, your journey, your elevator pitch, what are you passionate about in ESG? And probably that will come out in, in the goals first description. Well, absolutely. I think goals first has its elevated pitch in one word. The idea behind creating a firm, this new asset management firm that we focus on uh, fixed income, is this idea and a way of life of seeing your goals first, bootstrapping the journey, and then executing. And to any person involved in fixed income, it would sound awfully like uh, bootstrapping an yield curve, and it's uh, nothing short of it, which is see the result and then get there with the best means and the best way possible. But my background is uh, I spent 15 years at PIMCA. I've been very lucky to be involved in a variety of asset classes, anything from private finance like leverage loans to looking after financial assets, like lending to 
banks through before and through the financial crisis. It's, shall I say, enlightening experiences a full 10 years of that. As far as ESG and impact is concerned, I think I come to ESG from a slightly different perspective, maybe to most folks. For me, first and foremost, I'm obsessed about finance. And it's the realization during the financial crisis that hit me that finance, that credit specifically tends to default in a three very specific ways in the last 300 years. And no amount of financial analysis were ever enough to prevent those defaults. And ASG was a fantastic lens for which to gain some insight and influence final outcome. So that what pushed me to create goals first with this idea and obsession to mobilize liquid finance for change by unlocking its full value. Before we start that, if you're familiar with these podcasts, I normally have a fun question or a teaser just to keep you working the brain full time on this podcast. It's ESG and sustainability. And ultimately, that's all the mechanics and the technical is about this concept of intergenerational equity, saving the planet for the future generation. So on that note, I've set this teaser of if you were to meet Greta Thunberg, the designated representative of the planet's future generations, how would you look her in the eye and say that you've significantly changed your family's lifestyle to help us to get to net zero? But so let's dive into this standardisation, which is the topic of our podcast. In our previous podcast, we focused on societal and governance factors, which are obviously key in delivering the sustainability. But I think today we, we'd really like to focus on those environmental and sustainability goals and how this industry is going to bring a step change about that. So first of all, I'll go to you on this, Alex. What is being standardised and why do we need standardisation? You know, everyone's focused on SFDR because that's come in this month or at least the first phase of it in EU regulation. But is that all it is or is it wider? Yeah, probably more surprised by that than not, because I think as a startup, we have a very refreshing ability to not look just at the product, but think in a first principles level as to what does the end client need. And by end client in financial industry is always easy to think about your clients being pension funds or being asset owners. As a startup asset manager, we have a luxury of thinking, okay, our end client is the client and the beneficiary. And then around them, that's the ecostructure of the all financial advice and financial investment that has been structured. So what it is that the clients need in the first place and I'll challenge you to find a single person on the planet who wakes up in the morning and says, I would like some ESG today. I don't think this is how human mentality works. And we've come to realize that the ESG should be put, and more specifically, I'll come to standardization, should be put in the context of the overall journey. And what does the client actually want from their financial product? And, I, and we're boiling it down to three things. First, any client would like to have an understanding of what's going on. So the clarity is the number one. And understanding of risk returns in impact of their portfolio. Second is in having understood, they wouldn't want to be left behind. So they want to make as much money or if not more than their peers. So performance is really important. So that's clarity and performance. And the last thing is with their technology and financial education and access being broadly given across the board in the last 20, 30 years, the financial products, I think clients increasingly becoming aware that the financial capital makes an impact in addition to financial performance. So now if we structure a investment process behavior or service within a service industry, a service to an end client that delivers clarity, performance, and impact, that's for us is the guiding principles around which any product or investment process should be structured. So then coming to your question about standardization, we'll look at standardization, be it accelerated, whether it's accelerated by the regulation, by the capital markets, in the context of how close or far they are to delivering on those three goals that clients actually need. And in that respect, looking at SFDR for the prism of it or any other legislation for that matter, it comes down to 
what it is that you're trying to achieve through the means of capital. And if I think about, again, financial technology today and financial technology 300 years ago, the most revolutionary thing that we could impact the environment and impact the societies at scale primarily boils down to a few things, two primarily. One is fungibility of capital, which is ability of us collectively to contribute in one pot for somebody to take the risk and for us to collectively benefit from this. And therefore, clipping off the left tail, because not everybody, if you think about subsidizing an infrastructure project, it can lead to higher returns, but it can have significant losses. By socializing this investment across multiple stakeholders, some people would be in a better position to socialize, to provide capital, and some would be less. So you can actually start structuring financial instruments. And thinking through the lens of fungibility, is SFDR in Europe accessing this or helping clients to access this? I actually don't know. I go back to clarity, performance, and impact is definitely an attempt by SFDR to provide more clarity. Does it address it, the other two? Will it address performance? The short answer, it absolutely will address performance if people exclusively start following this without and start giving up on the fungibility of capital. Will it create an impact? At question mark. So standardization definitely helps accelerate a trend that you want to see and facilitate the growth. But we need to think a little bit like social architects or an architect when we think about standardization and who is it delivered by, be it regulation, capital, or people themselves through a variety of channels. Yes, I think that's a good segue to you, Scott. And, and I'll also pose the question Alex was talking about. People don't wake up in the morning and, and necessarily think about ESG. Would you agree with that statement? And also, from a US perspective, do you see standardization coming or is it more about principles uh, and that will deliver these outcomes that are why of standardization? When we talk to clients about their wealth, we do so in the context of balance sheet management. So individuals and families, like institutions, have balance sheets. They have assets and they have liabilities. And like institutions, some of those assets are tangible and some are intangible. Same with the liabilities. The ultimate success in wealth and asset management is that the balance sheet balances. Yes, you want to make money and yes, you want to beat the relevant indices and all of those kind of things. But in the very long run and at the very high level, it's all about the balance sheet balancing. Money is therefore a means to an end. The assets exist to support the liabilities. And the liabilities may be retirement, it may be legacy for family, it may be philanthropic, but it may also be an impact that one wants to have on one's surroundings from an environmental standpoint, given what we're talking about today. So no, I don't think our clients wake up in the morning thinking about ES&G in that framework, but I do think they wake up in the morning thinking about what do I need my money to do for me, for my family, for my community, and for my world. So we have found it very easy to incorporate sustainability into conversations with clients simply because it falls into that rubric of balancing the balance sheet in the long run. I welcome the movement towards more disclosure because the way families balance their balance sheet will differ from family to family. So more disclosure about the way in which companies allocate their resources, how they do what they do, how they treat their employees, the diversity of boards, all the things that we can talk about, those are all inputs for our clients to decide what is the right expression for them in their portfolios of what they want to support. So I think the standardization that I welcome, and I think it's coming in the States, and, and honestly, we're taking a lot of clues from SFDR and other European developments and forming regulatory developments here in the States. So, I mean, I think disclosure and clarity is, is key, is the message I'm getting from both of you here. And maybe we can cover this from a different angle as well. So maybe you, Scott, how you see the standardization pushing through to real change in terms of 
how that investment cycle, how that standardization will push through, how that disclosure helps you know, push that philosophy. I think what we're going to see in the States is a complement to FASB, the Financial Accounting Standard Board's requirement about disclosure. So in addition to disclosing financial things, the requirements will expand to include disclosures on carbon footprints or greenhouse gas emissions, board diversity, workforce diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives. Uh, a, a new one to that list is disclosure on corporate political spending. That's arisen over the past couple of years, perhaps for obvious reasons here in the States. And all of that to observe that in, in some ways there are no objectively right answers to those questions. The trends from year to year may be more important than the level right now, but those sorts of things will give investors the insight they need to make sustainability decisions in addition to the financial decisions. Gary Gensler, who is the incoming chairman of the SEC in the Biden administration, has been a student of European regulatory developments and will borrow and Americanize them as only we on this side of the pond can do. But I think that that's going to be a real accelerated trend over the next four years. The Biden administration has made a commitment to this, and I think they'll carry through on it. Alex, take, coming on from Scott's discussion there about the engagement process, fixed income as an ESG product is something that I guess for many people may be a bit abstract. I mean, given the, the lack of voting rights or the, the ownership of shares, you've got your seniority within the capital structure, but how do you affect change if it's not over cycles or you're breaking a covenant or there's a default? How does that work? Does that mean there's a different approach as a, as a bondholder or a, a credit investment? It's a different approach, but it's definitely informed by equities. So I think you're asking also two questions. One is the materiality of bonds, and the second is the engagement and how exactly it's conducted and what's possible for the bondholder cycle. So number one, I think from my experience, ESG risks have been referred to as latent risk within the construct of a bond, which I completely and wholly disagree with, because I think as bond investors, we're obsessed with the downside. So we look for any information that can help us calculate the probability of default and the severity of loss. And once we start looking at megatrends like climate change, globalization, demographics, and technology, they start really, really stressing the existing predetermined capital structures. So to assume that the potential losses incurred by the bondholders will be some in distant future, maybe outside of the maturity of your bonds, I think it's naive. A lot of these megatrends have gestated to the point where they immediately affect the existing capital structures. So that's on the materiality. As far as the engagement thing is concerned, I'm actually really glad that you asked this. In 2015, when I started looking after the and created the ESG investment platform at Pimco, I looked to equity market to inform what the good investment process and the product design would be. And as any businessman, you look at the flows and they say, okay, well, what makes equity market and ESG grow? And it's after a few weeks of research, it became very, very simple that strategies that it was an active idea of active ownership and ability to influence corporations or investees with your vote. What was immediately apparent to me that there is a huge discrepancy between what I saw on the ground, ability to engage with CFOs, treasurers, and management teams as a bondholder, and how much credence to that was given by the outside world, where the perception was that the bondholders don't have a right to engage with investors, only equity investors do. So I chaired the first PLI engagement committee in 2017, where we looked specifically in the scope and limitations of bondholder engagement. And maybe I can point maybe people to this paper. It's been after a year of work, you'll find it on PRI website. But more interestingly, I think just to address breaking some of the myths, number one is this idea of what makes equity holder seemingly more powerful than the bondholder? And this idea of power 
that equity holders can invoke change. Well, it's not really true, because if you look at the biggest resolutions, the biggest successful resolutions that have been going towards climate change have been created with the consent of the management or supported by the management. Because if you look at the regulation in terms of exemptions that the U.S. company have, and those, and those regulations been in existence since 1935, there are about 13 different exemptions where the management can simply choose to ignore the shareholder resolution. There's a number of loopholes when the manager can just choose to go about. So in, in many of those cases, it's not the stick, unless it's an activism by a significant shareholder, that actually changes things. It's a consent and mutual collaboration between the equity holders and management. Now, we can do a lot better than that in bond because number one is we're not restricted to AGMs. We see management a lot more often in bonds than the equity folks do. And it's not because we have better access. It's just because large companies tend to borrow more and more frequently. They have refinancing need. They come to the market more often. They have to see investors more often. It's a structural issue. The second thing is the transfer of power or the leverage, if you will, doesn't quite work like this in bonds because in bonds you can get away by not investing anything and still be a very, very important to the company. Because if the company comes with the issue that is presently expensive, it's not important that you're investing or not investing in it today. What's important from the bondholder perspective is that you keep participating and researching the companies with an ability to invest in it into the future. So if you think about large investment grade corporations, their margins are largely dependent on the low cost of borrowing. And guess who provides the borrowing? It's the bondholders. Yes. So it's this continued education and maintaining of the business alpha, if you will, between this bond that exists between the bondholders and the equity holders. And the last thing I said, it goes back to this idea of power. No amounts of screaming at a counterparty for the best price when the market is falling will ever get the move. No amount of, of threat will ever deliver the result. It, like in life, like in mutual human relationships, progress comes from a consent where the both party think they can win and moving in a shared direction. So this idea of collaborative engagement I think the benefits of it are greatly underestimated by the market today. The bondholders in that realm can exert, can influence quite a lot more things that market gives them credit for. And more importantly, it's not a new idea. If you look at the Japanese market and look at the engagement exercised by the Japanese investment firms towards Japanese companies, you will rarely find activism. What you will find is a very collaborative engagement where investor is taking almost a semi-consulting role with the management, yeah. helping them to highlight synergies inside of the businesses and increase the intrinsic value of the company such they can benefit from this later. So engagement is a subject very dear to my heart. And I, I'll go as far as to say, and I'll say it as a trader with a trader hat on, engagement today is by far the most asymmetric opportunity, both in socioeconomic terms and in financial terms. It's the most mispriced financial trade, both in equities and fixed income. Alex, let, let, me, let me jump in on that, Chris. Okay. Alex has a really good point. The conversation about sustainable investing in the States is 98% about equity, not fixed income. And I remind my clients with some frequency that there is a challenge. It's not an insurmountable one, but a challenge in implementing an ESG or a sustainable approach in public equity because we are not 
providing capital directly to the company. Yes, we can vote with our dollars. We can certainly sell a company whose practices we don't approve. And yes, we can vote proxies as well. But more often in the fixed income sphere, you as an investor are a direct provider of capital. I'm talking about the primary market and primary issuances. And in addition to that, so much of the media coverage in the States deals with the equity side of the picture as well. You read headlines about practices at Amazon or Google or Tesla or something like that. So there's an availability bias there as well. And I have seen over time the trends in the states related to ESG shift, evolve, I should say, from investment by emission. I don't like what this company's doing, so I will refuse to own their shares. More towards investment by commission, either in uh, direct fixed income or in private equity or in venture capital, where not only are you a direct provider of capital, but in those latter instances, if you are a large enough holder, have a seat at the table and a voice in strategy as well. I think that's the evolution that we're seeing, certainly in family offices in the States, but it's still largely about equity and not fixed income. So I think that may be a further stage of evolution. In a way, it's a standardization if we're saying, well, actually, engagement is crucial for any kind of progress, alpha, delivering on those outcomes. I'm not sure the current discussion, as we've, we've highlighted, uh, contemplates that for the bondholders necessarily. So I think that's, thank you, Alex. Chris, it's more than crucial. It's, it's owed. There's a risk of posture where investors can sit back and say, okay, well, this is something that somebody should do. And it'd be almost sound theoretical. Let me just bring it home a little bit more. It's Every client is owed for participation with their money, three things. They owed access to superior returns. And as investment professionals, we own a business to provide that and to attempt to provide that. And we have a lot of differentiating factors and processes and ideas. The second thing they owed is an understanding of risk return and impact, because otherwise it's a misrepresentation. So both those things are covered under the fiduciary duty. And I think Department of Labor rules specifically about portfolio construction ever since 1960s, 1970s had addressed those points. But the third thing the client is owed is ability to vote with their money, to impart a view and to influence change. Whether the clients are presently outsourcing that need to managers, which they are, and unaware of it, is one thing. They could be also outsourcing it to the managers who themselves are unaware mm. of that need. I would have pushed it as far as to say, if you're looking, thinking about first principles, the fiduciary duty of an investment management industry, all the entire value chain, is to address all the rights that are owed to a client. And under those circumstances, I think it's, as Scott had mentioned, it's been found that 80% of end investors in the UK and the US are even not aware or not actively executing their voting rights. Now, the question is, are they not aware or not they actively executing? So I would say engagement is not something that we should be doing or it'd be good to do. That is right. That is owed and much overdue to the end client that is providing capital. I guess, do you think we need a standardization in terms of considering these goals that we've been discussing on this podcast? Yeah, for me, it always comes back to uh, putting the cart before the horse. I found that no amount of standardization and framework are ever useful unless you're answering a question. So first and foremost, I think it's important, what question are we answering? And this is where standardization should only come into play when somebody has an or articulated or intending to follow an impact framework. An impact framework could be achieving net zero. It could be facilitating transitioning in a secular economy. It could be facilitating energy transition without taking unnecessary losses. So those are impact frameworks or reducing inequalities, more specifically sustainable development goals, quite frankly. And once you have that framework, 
then standardization is a lot easier because then it incentivizes the types of behaviors and principles which regulator then can either accelerate or limit because regulator's job is to if you think about standardization the, the best technology we've had so far is stock exchanges because you standardize the data and the disclosure of public companies to make investment in public companies available to the greater public well the same principles applies not in finance but to environment towards the human capital towards environmental capital and it just follows the same principles but fundamentally it needs to answer a question first what question are we answering because if we put standardization first and then trying to stand behind the standardization it becomes a situation where the blind is leading blind quite frankly because we don't have a goal first in place and the law of unintended consequences comes to bear on this as well and we, we've seen this uh, again and again and again people respond to incentive structures but perhaps not in ways that the person who created the incentive structure intended <laughs> the march towards standardization i welcome but to alex's point you have to be careful what you aim at because you might hit it only to discover that you aimed at the wrong thing and that's worth avoiding definitely i think perhaps you may be able to expand on scott is about this impact framework and give an example of what that impact could be or the outcome you're going for i know for you with a diverse set of clients they may have differing objectives maybe you could talk about that in a sustainable context and why that pushes against a very rigid tick box standardization it's a part of every client conversation we have speaking of aiming at the right thing i i want to ask the question what are we aiming at here and and there are some very simple answers to that i want to beat the market i want to make money i want to beat inflation those are the obvious given definitions of success but when you drill down even further success for our clients and i think maybe for any investor is that their values be aligned with their wealth that leads to a discussion about what values they have to ensure that that alignment takes place and that can range and can be even diametrically opposed to someone else's definition of value i'll give you an example of that if you're working with a, a religious order there may be a religious backdrop to the way in which they invest a prohibition on owning alcohol or healthcare companies that manufacture contraceptives on the other hand you may have a client who believes in the sustainability of the planet and for whom population control is a societal good and for whom contraception is not only acceptable it's a desirable expression in their portfolio so to identify those things and to document them with the client i think that's very important as well so that you can remind a client down the road that we had the shared definition of success part of it was financial part of it was impact and then we can talk about ways of measuring progress towards those goals the financial side is easy you can calculate that to a handful of decimal points and look at an index and decide whether you succeeded or not over an appropriate time frame the impact can be a little bit more subjective and that's okay just acknowledging that upfront and documenting it with a client to the degree that one can is a way to create the transparency so that down the road hindsight bias doesn't creep in and you have a shared framework for what success looks like both in financial and non-financial terms and that when i hear that described for me that very much is the american ability to look at design thinking and be consumer orientated and you're designing the product around them rather than around the goals that you as managers have set and and been driven by regulation as we bring this to close alex in terms of 
what what one of our listeners could take back to their next meeting when they're talking about SFDR or a move to standardization. What would be your top tip to get them they can discuss in that meeting or, or maybe bring to the next if they're on the working committee? So to, to answer your question, if I was to suggest a deliverable that the listeners would take away, and I'm assuming we're talking largely with uh, a responsible community or financial community or broader people who are interested in using financial capital to promote change, I would challenge for themselves to try and come up with an elevator pitch of their strategy or their impact. I'll give an example. If you want to sell credit, you do it through one sentence, and that is uh, level of spreads compensate one for the probability of default and severity of loss. That's it. That's the whole sentence. And you can sell investment grade, high yield credit, anything that satisfied or even private debt alternatives. Now, I would ask the listeners to create their own powerful sentence or two for what is their strategy what their personal brand, what the investment is trying to achieve. And really don't let it go until you have that sentence. Because once you have that sentence, the follow-up actions with respect to your bosses, to your subordinates, to your practices, to your new ideas, would just richly manifest themselves from that. But get to the bottom of that very simple thing, which is what is the essence of your entire effort and drive? I think I'm, I'm going to be using that, Alex. I think that's a very, a very powerful thought process. Scott? Can I ask you for something just as insightful? Well, that's a high bar. I would encourage listeners uh, to think about sustainability through the eyes of their clients and acknowledge the wonderfully wide range and the diversity of the definitions of sustainability and how they may differ from investor to investor. And so to think about this challenge, not necessarily as a product, but as a solution. And you'll forgive me, but my 31 years on Wall Street have made me ever so slightly cynical that whenever Wall Street hears of a new idea, they're very quick to turn it into a product, put a label on it, and charge an extra X basis points to sell it to clients. And I don't think that's a sustainable path towards sustainability. I do think it has to be more of a solution that requires more work, both on the standpoint of the wealth and asset management community, but it also requires more work on behalf of the client as well. Some clients may say, I'd like to have an ESG portfolio. Can I check the box and sleep tonight knowing that I've done that? The answer is no, it's not that easy. You have some work to do about thinking about and defining your values. Then we can align them with your wealth. And then we can, on a reiterative basis, check that again and again to make sure that alignment is still in place. It's harder than it seems. I think you're spot on. It's about solutions, not product. So thanks, guys. I think that's it's a very difficult one to summarize, really. Normally, I come back with my three points, but you've given us so much. I think in terms of standardization, I'm really going to summarize that in terms of there is a move towards more disclosure. But from the perspective here, we've talked about clarity, performance and impact, and both through the real gem we had was around bondholders and that, that engagement that we're familiar with in equities, but actually maybe the real power and the real revolution will, will lie within the credit markets, taking up the mantle on that. And then I really want to go with those last two points around finding a solution and, and using your common sense. So come up with a powerful sentence. So thank you for those insights, but you're not off the hook yet because I have Greta with me. So Scott, what, what have you done lately um, to save the planet? Well, I'd, I'd love to meet Greta. I'm a big fan. My my kids, I've got 11-year-old twins, are big fans. As a matter of fact, my daughter has a picture of Greta on her desk here at home. I would talk to Greta and ask Greta what she thought about the power of incremental change. 
I think about climate change and the way to address it using the old Japanese notion of kaizen, constant improvement. So you wake up every day saying, not how can I solve climate change today, but what one small step can I take so that by the end of the day, we're a little bit closer. And I'll share with you one story uh, drawn from the pandemic files. Last spring, when uh, the world was in lockdown, one of the implications of which was a shortage of paper goods here in the States. It was very difficult to find toilet paper and paper towels and things like that. So I came back from the grocery store empty-handed and said to my daughter, I couldn't find any paper napkins. And she said to me, why don't we stop using paper napkins and use cloth napkins instead? And we have not bought paper napkins since. Is that going to solve climate change? No, but I think it's an incremental step towards doing so. And I would hope that Greta would acknowledge that if we can all think about every day what one small step we can make, that's a path to success. Agreed. Kaizen, then. It's incremental change. Alex, have you been making any incremental changes? I, I have, but I'm going to build on what Scott had said, because I think it's such a powerful idea. And the biggest realization that I've come to as I age because as you're younger, you think everything is in your power and your power alone. And the more you age and the more experience you gain, the more you realize you have none. And power is an illusion. The, the only way to make change is through collaboration with other people. And I think the, the biggest change I make is obviously through my kids and some of the things I tend to impart on them. And when people ask you, if you give yourself an advice 20 years ago, what advice would that be? And historically, I used to think I'm quite happy and content with my life, so I wouldn't give any, wouldn't change any. And lately, I've come to realize I think the best advice, and this is what I impart on my kids as well, is to say, listen, and not listen more, but listen. Because often, I think people listen, or I certainly listen through the filter of what am I going to come back with? How did it uh, support my journey? Mm. But listen to hear, because people will tell you awfully a lot about what the intentions are how they can be helpful, and more importantly, how you can work closely with them. It's the, I suppose, arrogance and, er and energy of youth, and I'm speaking of myself here, not of anyone else. Listening and collaboration, I think those are definitely wise words. So I think you've passed the Greta test. So again, both, thank you very much for your time. I've, I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. So thank you for taking your time out today to talk about ESG standardization. And to you also. Thank you. Thank you, Scott, too. To our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and what has been a, a positive discussion for the outlook for ESG, for me at least, and hopefully something you can take back to your workplace whenever you go back there or your next Zoom call. We look forward to grabbing another cup of coffee with Alchemy Consulting with you all in the next in our series of podcasts on the theme of optimism with caution in the wealth and asset management industry. If you want to discuss this podcast further with us, have any questions or would even like to take part in our series Optimism with Caution, please get in touch with us through inquiries at algamy-consulting.com or via LinkedIn Algamy Consulting. Thank you and goodbye.